Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another, games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's show is Will Luton. Uh, Will is an expert on free-to-play, like he has literally written the book on it. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's uh, quite unoriginally called Free to Play, but you know, um, he's also the uh, the product manager of Angry Birds Two at Rovio, uh, and th- this was a really good chat. Um, I sound like I was surprised by that. I'm not surprised by that. All of my chats are really good, um, but it was, uh, I was more surprised by some of the things that came up in the conversation. Like I was expecting to chat about Free to Play stuff, but kind of we we go really deep on the Dreamcast and how much we love the Dreamcast. Then I discover this whole new world of a pinball league and it's a really fun chat it kind of goes off uh, in all kinds of directions but i really really thoroughly uh, thoroughly enjoyed it um last couple of shows have been really well received so thanks very much for that um i don't know uh why necessarily but there seems to have been a bit of a, an uptick in in people listening so appreciate people who you know sharing it the show on uh, on twitter and rate and review it on itunes all of that really uh, really helps Actually, now that I think about it, um, I did notice that the show was, uh, it's really well recommended in the uh, Overcast app. Um, in fact, it was like, it, it's always kind of been up there in the games and hobbies sort of section. But as of last week, it was like one of the most recommended shows overall, which is insane. Like, um, I mean, uh, the people who listen to the podcast via Overcast is probably a very small proportion of like the total people um, who listen to the podcast. But if you do and you have, then thanks very much. Uh, Clearly, those people have exquisite taste. Um, so, yeah, thanks. That was a, a real thrill. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at Checkpoint Show on Twitter or it's Checkpoints Podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Uh, the show, of course, uh, has a Patreon too. Um, if you have the, the money and the inclination, um, you can donate to the show. It's uh, patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. All donations are very gratefully received. They all go back into making the show as good as it can possibly be. Uh, so they're all very much appreciated. And thanks to people who've already uh, already patronized the show. Um, yeah, so hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. serious business um so let's do uh, for the sake of, of formality i'll do like a, a generic introduction so uh will welcome to checkpoints thanks so much for for coming on if you don't mind would you introduce yourself yeah my name is will luton and i am a i guess you could call me a games designer i'm currently the uh, product manager for angry birds 2 at rovio in stockholm uh which is where i'm located right now i'm probably best known for having written a book on free-to-play called free-to-play which was published by pearson about three or four years ago yeah um i haven't read the book i need to say that up front because i don't want to act like i have and act like um, <laughs> but i haven't but i'm really yeah. interested to talk about it it's, it's a really like we've got a mutual friend uh 
friend of the show and previous guest Mark Sorrell. Um, yeah. And and I've had many fascinating discussions with him about like the nature of free play because it is like to people that have sort of grown up with video games, it is seen as like inherently evil. Like oh no, that's only the bad games are, are free to play generally. But yeah. then I have spent the better part of the last three years uh, playing Hearthstone almost daily, um, and it's amazing. And I love that game so much. Yeah, and, and that is that is like one of the kings of free to play. I imagine. I think a lot of people use it as a kind of quote for, uh, or as a kind of touchstone for free to play done right, which kind of irks me a little bit. And you know, I think it's it's fantastic what. Um, what has been done by Blizzard, and particularly as a Magic player, um, seeing the the difference between you know how they've taken that and making that super accessible, yeah, like this this complex card game. Um, so I, yeah, I'm a big also a big uh, you know lover of TCGs, and I, I think that Hearthstone is fantastic. Um, but yeah, you know there's there's lots of really good examples of, of free to play games, and I think even the ones that a lot of people point to as bad examples are games that I actually really like. Um, Game of War, for example, is something I spent six months in and was really deep. Uh, and that is a game that I've had, had probably the the strongest emotional reactions to over any game ever. I've um, never played Game is, of War. Is that like kind of a kind of Clash of Clans kind of game, like Clash of Clans style of game? No, Game of War is like a it's a it's a, a persistent world with real world space where you have these kingdoms and you build up armies and you can send them off to other other kingdoms to fight. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's super, super deep. Like it's a kind of a mess as a product. There's so many features and so many things going on that for a lot of people it's kind of inaccessible, which is um, a criticism that's constantly leveled at it. Uh, and quite rightly so. And I think a lot of people, even in the industry, in the free-to-play industry, don't understand it because the way that the game functions, the way that it monetizes or the 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 way that it, it retains players is it has this kind of like violent 1% of players that, that play it very deeply and it's incredibly, incredibly engaging. I, I only know that from the adverts, like the, the prolific advertising spend there is on... The, it is that one, right? They, they had... They didn't have a bunch of like celebrities endorsing it and stuff a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's right. Kate Upton. Um, Kate Upton. Um, there was an awkward video where Mariah Carey attempts to run. Um, and it seems like she doesn't know how to use her legs. <laughs> if you've ever seen that one as well, um, yeah, it's uh, there's there's definitely a marketing budget behind it, and it's it's been the top grossing uh, uh, on iOS for a long, long time, and I guess also on Android. Uh, and it, it can do that because it it engages players, and it has this real conflict and real kind of social situations that other games just simply don't have, yeah, which are complex and deep and real, and you can lose, you know, effectively real money in it in, or real time. Uh, there was a point where I'd built up an army for about three months and had spent maybe a couple of hundred uh, dollars in it and um i'd forgotten to put up a shield and a player came in and wiped it all out like a bigger player and it was devastating it was horrible i felt like i wanted to cry <laughs> but that then i think that was like in a kind of it was a it was a point at which there was two things i could do i could churn and leave the game or i could become super engaged and i chose the latter and you know i built back up and then Eventually, me and my clan went and got someone that was involved in in that raid, uh, and did the same thing back to them. And it was like a really kind of vengeful, beautiful moment of of human emotion. It was, you know, it was a real roller coaster. And that was 
that for me was just it, it was it was really really beautiful and i think the they should put the game... cameras on at moments like that just like was there like a burnout game that used to do used to take like a snapshot whenever you crash that'd be amazing just at that exact moment just to like video a little three second clip of someone yeah, for sure. It would have been fantastic to have seen their face. I mean, so but cruel, so cruel. Like, I'm a monster for thinking that, but I do I do think that would be quite fun. Yeah, it might also be a nice uh, piece of analytics as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that is a joke because that would be a, a gross invasion of privacy, of course. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think also it, at the time, my face, when I, you know, I'd seen the attack come in and uh, you know, I'd logged into the game, game it was... It was I was with colleagues and, you know, I was trying to hold it together, but they could see that I was really annoyed. <laughs> and I was getting a little bit, a little bit tearful. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a kind of a, a, a awesome moment. But that, I think, is like Game of War is, is often considered as like the most cynical, the most, um, the kind of dirtiest version of free-to-play that exists. Uh, but I think it's just kind of like it's it's misunderstood. Uh, yeah, so like, did, did you, like you know previous to you know obviously you're you're a convert to to it now but was there a time when you were like oh this is oh this is rubbish you know they're not real games and if so like what shifted you was it like a, an intellectual shift or was it just like for instance like you just got into game of war and you're like oh no this this works uh, you mean specifically for game of war you mean for free to play games just for free to play games in general yeah i wondered if if like you know it's kind of lessened now i think but there is a general kind of consensus yeah. That oh no, they're they're but they're not real games. They're just exploits exploitation tools, basically, to get as much money at you as as they can. And if 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 you have ever held that opinion, and if so, what changed it? Was it like an intellectual exercise, or was it just a specific game that you were like, oh, this is great? No, not really. I think it was. Um, I didn't ever really come to it with that um, that kind of bias, which I think a lot of people had. It, Something that was happening was that I, you know, we'd made this game at my my first company, which was Mobile Pie uh, in Bristol, which was a it was kind of awful. Um, it was in retrospect, it was this game where you break dance with your fingers. It was called B Boy Beats, and it was a rhythm action game. Uh, and we were super super proud of it. And it had actually it came out or launched just as the iPhone four had launched in the US. And we were celebrating, and we were sat outside of a uh, of a pub, um, and there was a guy smoking. He had an iPhone four that he'd imported from the US. And we were talking to him. He was like, "Oh yeah, I paid a grand for it. I, you know, I paid this. This I, I needed it day one. I wanted to pay this additional amount to to get it here. And you know, which to us kind of seemed like a little bit, a little bit wild, but whatever. Yeah. Um, and we said to him, "You should check out our our game." And he was like, "Oh, you guys make iPhone games." And we had a conversation about it, and he was like, "I'm going to download it." And uh, he said, "How much is it?" And I was like, "Oh, it's 59p." And he was like, "Oh, that's a bit much." <laughs> and that was. It was kind of an arresting moment. It was the game didn't go on to do very well in terms of a sales perspective, and, and there were product problems, but there was also this this fact of people inherently don't want to pay for these things. Something's changed. There's been a shift here, um, and for me, the idea of of paying for a disc in a in a box makes sense because, as you know, there's a production line that this associated to that. You go to a store, you buy yeah. it. There's a physical cost to it, but to to take something from a server and put it onto someone's device, there is no phys- physical product cost to that. So it, it changes the, the perception of value that players have um, or consumers have, and they're, they're pretty savvy to it. And, and what this guy was saying was not, hey, I'm tight, because it was clearly not the case that he had money, was willing to spend it on frivolous things. It was that he felt that there wasn't value in 
paying to have that download. Um, and so as free-to-play started to emerge on mobile, it was really interesting for me. It was interesting about how does this work? What does it mean? It's a new deal for players. Um, and also kind of growing up, you know, I, it, when I was a kid, my family didn't have a lot of money and a lot of my games consoles were hand-me-downs or, or freebies or things that I got from car boot sales. And, it, you know, games felt so inaccessible in, yeah. in many ways that free-to-play kind of solves that thing. Um, it's no longer about having to pay you know 40 quid or a hundred dollars to get this di- this disc in a box it's a, it's there it's available to you and if you like the game you spend money in it um and as i've you know progressed from my career now i have lots of disposable income and i do that in many games like i play pinball and i play uh, uh, magic the gathering quite extensively and i spend a lot of money in those games and i get joy i derive joy from spending money in those games um well so just to, like no sorry carry on yeah it's just that, that shift of it being there, it's available, it's accessible to you for free. And if you don't want to spend money, you don't have to. If you do, you can spend a lot. If it becomes a part of your life, if it's something that you value, then you can spend money there. I'm 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 gonna play devil's advocate, and this this is genuinely devil's advocate because I don't really like I, I'm not trying to push any sort of agenda or anything. But just um, for conversation's sake, like this anecdote about this guy in the bar, and he you know he's like, oh, that's a bit much for the 59p. Do you not think that's purely a result of people going free to play first? Like, if, if free to play had never existed, that would not have, not be a thing that he would think about. I think at the time that that happened, um, there was the race to the bottom had happened. So I think every uh, you had to launch games at fifty nine p, but before in app purchases, if if I recall correctly, had uh, had hit the market. Okay. Uh, or available in um, iOS. So even at that point, I think players weren't weren't willing. It wasn't a case that they'd been, you know, it'd been foisted upon them free to play because at that point people weren't really making free game free games. The only exception was maybe like Backflip had had paper toss a, a kind of uh, a free price point. Yeah. Um, and nobody really knew how they were going to make money from it, but it was obviously doing extremely extremely well. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I think even from really early on in the app store, even before free-to-play was possible because there was a time when in-app purchases weren't there, it was true that people didn't want to spend money. And, you know, why should they? This is this is very interesting. Um, purely, like, would, do you not think even... And again, like, I'm really... I'm not trying to be contrarian. I'm genuinely... I'm just... I think it's a really interesting discussion. Like, it's probably... It's a much harder thing to do, but just to put the onus on the the audience to understand that this is you're paying for the creators ideas and time basically like that that is what the regardless of whether there's a physical good or not at the end of it that's not what you're you're paying for you're paying for people's um ideas and time basically yeah i think that's reasonable but i don't know why it should be a linear cost and why everyone should be charged the same amount like that that notion of you here's the price of the ticket um why is it that price yeah okay okay that's good that's good i like that um, and i genuinely I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with you i just i really think it's an interesting so discussion i'm trying to i'm trying to second guess what i know people would be thinking listening um yeah um especially because i speak to like i speak to so many indie devs on the show and that like that is a common sort of thread is like how to to make money because and the, the kind of the tricky part of it is that it is like certain games are just much more suited to free to play than, than others and so trying to find the 
the models is the is the really hard part of that i think yeah definitely and i think early on that there was a there's been this kind of free-to-play indie war i think particularly in like the uk industry or the scene there where there was this people were very outspoken on either side and it, it was a little bit ridiculous in in the notion that people were saying every game has to be free to play um and maybe i've been a little guilty of, uh, of that kind of bias in the past but it doesn't make sense like you, probably you're not going to make a linear um platforming game with a with a story as free to play you're not going to make good money from that it doesn't make sense it's it's not what the uh you know it's not what the genre fits yeah uh but if you want to have really massive scale in terms of revenue and, and audience on on mobile and almost every platform now uh with the exception of console but certainly pc you need to be free to play it gives you access to the largest audience it gives you access uh, then to the largest revenue as well um and i i do genuinely believe that it is a better deal in most cases Certainly, I've played like you know, paid a hundred dollars to play a game that, that sucks, and that's a pretty horrid feeling. Yeah. Um, but I still really enjoy console games. I still you know buy premium price console games and and, uh, and and play those. So the kind of either or that it's a it's a battle which has to be won or lost is kind of a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, no, I mean it does seem to have kind of settled a little bit because. Uh, and maybe maybe this is just a transition thing while the while there's still kind of physical stores basically because i don't think we've really seen like a true digital marketplace on on consoles because they've had to kind of they have to cater to the existing market which is like the shops and so they can't undercut as much as they probably could in theory um yeah but you know i'm sure that day will come um so will let's let's dig back um if you can remember what was your yeah. very first experience of a video game? I think it was a some sort of clone pong machine, like a, one of those grandstand or or something along those lines uh, that my dad used to keep in his sock drawer. Why it was in his sock drawer, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure. He actually used to be a TV repairman, um, so I think it somehow it, he would he'd been given it, or it was a promotion, or something. It'd end up, you know probably sat in his sock drawer for like 15 years by the time that I uh, dug it out as a child uh, and that was probably my first experience with a video game but I don't recall it being very positive experience I don't really remember much about it but I'm assuming you were quite uh, young at that by this point I was born in 84 I'm like 33 now so um, it, it I probably would have been a, it would have been the 90s I'd imagine by the time that I was able to play games or maybe uh, very late 80s so at that point, that technology was really, really old. We we did have um, an Atari Two Six Hundred, which was in um, the toy cupboard in in um, in, in um, my parents' bedroom, which I also really recall. It was up on a top shelf, and I would look at the pictures on the box, and they had these um, these pictures of these kind of really bright uh, play fields, and there was combat, and, and uh, I think there was probably Pac Man on the side of the box, uh, and it fascinated me. And I would beg my parents to, to, to let me play it, but it, there was a fault with the power supply, which my uh, my dad ended up fixing. I remember the day that I got to play it, um, and I played Battlezone and Pac-Man and Moon Patrol. And that was really probably where video games began for me. And so, uh, like... Was with the Atari 600, yeah. Were they, like, your parents' consoles that kind of, you know, had fallen to disrepair and they just put away? So they weren't, they weren't yours. They were kind of, uh, you know, generationally passed on. 
I think it was a friend of the family had um, had sold it to my parents for my older sisters. And I think what happened is that they worked out some deal where they said you can have the console for free, but you've got to buy the games, if I remember correctly. Um, and it, yeah, it it somehow gotten broken and left there in in this kind of state of disrepair, gathering dust. Is did you play games with the the rest of your family, or was it just you? No, my sister, my um, so I have two older sisters, and my uh, the middle sister, she um, she certainly when we got to the master system era would play a lot of video games with me, um, and in fact I would often be kind of observing her play, and I remember. Uh, Getting pretty fine, Alex Kidd uh, in Miracle Land, the, the built-in game in the the Master System too. Stone Cold uh, Classic, definitely, and it still kind of holds up as well if you go back to it. Did you so ever find uh, Jan Kane's letter in Alex Kidd Miracle World? I, I'm not too sure. I know that we got to the the Ice Blue Castle at one point as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I yeah. just—it's one of my fondest memories as a kid. There was a there's a a letter that's referred to all the way through the game, and I finished the game, and it was like the only game I had for about a year. So I I mastered Alex Kid, and yeah. uh, one holiday I was away, and I came home, and my my older brother had found the letter, and I was like, no, that's not possible. I've scoured every inch <laughs> of that game, and sure enough, he had. There was a room I'd missed, and it was oh, really? it completely blew my mind. It gives you the code to get to the last boss so you're not completely relying on just chance yeah there's a really hard uh, puzzle at the end of it right mm. it's like a combination code and you have to like hit certain blocks but if you if you hit them in the wrong yeah. order a ghost comes out and kills you immediately so it's really brutally unfair to be honest but yeah, i figured it was, out just through trial and error that's 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 what only having that game does for you for a year <laughs> i've watched some speed runs of it uh, uh, recently and i was pretty sure that the version that I was watching was very different from the version that I recall playing after um, maybe the second helicopter level. But yeah, it, it, there, there certainly I've got very fond memories of that game and, and very vivid uh, recollection of, of the characters in it and the, the nicknames that we would give them. Um, <laughs> oh no, it was I, so good. It was so good. I, 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 it never even occurred to me to look up speedruns for Alex Kidd. I'm definitely going to do that now. Because I like honestly, I was so good. Like sometimes I'll watch a speed run and think, "How on earth can anyone have discovered that weird hack?" Um, but I, I, I totally did. Like there was a thing on Alex Kid. If you hit pause at the exact moment just before uh, you fought one of the bosses, it would mm. glitch out, and you could see their their uh, choices above them for the rock paper scissors game and pre. Oh really? Them. Yeah, but it was like proper, like I'm sure, like frame perfect. It probably wasn't frame perfect. That was ten, but still, <laughs> it was all deterministic as well. Though that was the uh, or kind of pseudo deterministic. There was a way that you could always win by uh, certain choices with yeah, the, the Jenkins yeah. bosses, right? Yeah. So that was I, you I really, in then. Yeah, I think at that point. I mean, I I remember begging my parents for a master system, um, and my uh, my nan bought it for me, and that was. I cried that Christmas that I opened the the box. It was it it felt very very special. I knew it was something that um, it was probably a stretch to buy at that time. I had in between. I think uh, the Atari Two Six Hundred. I'd bought a Commodore Sixty Four, a car boot cell, um, by repeatedly going back up to to the the person that had it on their stool and uh, digging money out of like uh, 
the ashtray in my dad's car and going back <laughs> up this kind of this pile of change and i think eventually they just kind of took pity upon me and and uh gave me a corner 64 which came with the the blue basic instruction manual as well the spiral bound book and that was the first taste of of programming and game making for me as well um and i believe the first game i ever made was a, a, a pogs text adventure which was based around the playground of my school and it had some of my friends uh there in the playground and you could go up to them and wager <laughs> pogs that's that's quite that's quite interesting because pogs you know like so what was the text adventure like i can't even remember how that game went you like just bashed them together if i remember and the ones that flipped over you win right yeah, so the way it works is I think it, it Throw described... Throw pogs. <laughs> well, the, the, te- the actual pogs bit, I think there was some sort of power bar meter and some ASCII art, but there was like a hub area where you would talk to different boys in the playground and they would have a rough approximation of their collection um, <laughs> in the game. But that's obviously lost to the, the mist of time now, as it, uh, I don't think I ever committed it to tape. I'm surprised that Pogs haven't made a comeback. They they seem prime for that kind of sort of thirty to forty year old demographic that everything is is catered to now. Bring bring back Pogs. I was actually at um, I was in a cafe in Vancouver recently. I, I just moved from Canada to Stockholm in Sweden here, and uh, there was a a poster for a Pogs charity tournament. Really? Yeah, and I'd missed it. I was I was gutted about it. But it seemed like a yeah, it seemed like a probably peak hipster. Man, I used to I used to really love Pogs. They used to make good used to, they used to make really good uh, guitar plectrums. You could file them down yeah. and make really nice guitar plectrums out of Pogs. Because remember wow. my my high school band, we all had uh, Star Wars plectrums made out of the Star Wars Pogs. Um, oh, okay, we were so cool. Uh, so <laughs> so how how. Well, speaking of that, actually, like, you know, the, the friendship groups, like, did you have a bunch of friends that you would play games with? Did you sort of gravitate towards those sort of kids? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was, I guess, at the time I was at school, it was the the 16-bit, 18-bit era. So we were probably progressing from uh, Mass System and, and NES to Mega Drive and SNES. And also, maybe Atari STs and Amigas were coming onto the scene as well at that point. Yeah. So... Video games are a really big, uh, a really big part of that that time. And, and friends, you would spend time going to their their houses, particularly on a birthday, and somebody got a new game. Um, you know, it'd be an exciting time to play. I remember being kicked out of uh, somebody's house on a birthday for uh, playing Operation Wolf too close to the TV screen, and uh, their grumpy dad accused me of scratching the screen because I was holding the, the light gun. Up too <laughs> what close. a dick! Yeah, he was an asshole. What game was that? Was that was that was the Mass System had Operation Wolf, right, with the the light gun? That's right. Yeah. Oh man, that was also the coolest light gun. Uh, probably not the most functionally um, capable, but it looked it looked cool. You think it was better than the Zapper? Yeah, I think it was probably. Well, the, I mean, the Super Scope was the best one, but that just looked goofy. The Mass System light gun is just it looks cool. Like even still, like still now, it looks cool. It. It all went a bit wild in the 16-bit uh, era, but they had these kind of bazooka-style light guns, right? which was the Menacer and the, the, oh, the Super Menacer, Scope. Yeah, the Menacer was like a kind of, like almost like a periscope, wasn't it? You sort of put, it was like, a, you held it with both hands. <laughs> it was a hot mess, yeah. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> but the, I remember the Super Scope being really good. I remember like really enjoying the, the Super Scope games. 
I never, I never got a hands-on with one. I also, I never used the um, the power glove. No, I've never used the power glove. I imagine they're probably rubbish, though, right? Like, is I it not just the controller stuck on a glove? No, they have like a sensor um, which fits the TV screen. I guess a little bit like the Wii, um, and it does something with infrared. So it's it's reasonably smart. I know that they they were kind of. They're kind of fetishized, right, as an object. I yeah. do recall yeah. watching The Wizard with Fred S- Savage, and there's that line where he says, you know, keep your power gloves off of her. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, they, they meet some guy, I think he calls himself the master or something. Yeah, 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 no, I, I, know, I know it well. And there was that cheesy line that stuck with me, which I think at the time I thought, yeah, really cool. What oh, a cool line. It's a shame that that's... I, I've learned in recent years how much of a kind of exploitative film that was. Essentially, it's a two-hour-long advert for Mario Brothers Three, but at the time it was amazing because it was it was one of the only times I'd ever seen video games like in a film properly and just like oh, I'm video games cool or in any sort of cultural medium, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, then a little like a few years later, the Mario Brothers movie came out, and um, actually one of the one of my friends at, at school who I played um, a lot of video games with, his uncle was Bob Hoskins, and occasionally he would visit our street. Um, he would pull up in a quite fancy, I guess, that a Rolls Royce. well exciting. I never got to meet him. Oh, the, the, two t- the two times that he visited, I was, I was out. I was on like vacation or something in, and away. But uh, all the other boys got to meet him, and I was, uh, was gutted about that. That's one of those sort of classic kind of uh, playground things that actually is true. So, oh, my, my uncle is Super Mario. He's literally Super Mario. <laughs> yeah, this is it's not made up. This is verified by my own parents. So no, I no, no, I, I, I believe him. I believe him. Um, <laughs> it's a shame. It's such a, well, you know, it's not a terrible movie. It's actually quite a good, weird movie. It's just not Super Mario. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen it. You should watch it. It's really, it's really interesting. Like I think at the t- I remember being so excited about it at the time and just being crushed because it was awful and it was just had nothing to do with the games really. Um, but I've watched it quite recently and it is. It's, it's, it's not a terrible film. It's, it's a really interesting, weird film. Okay, well, I'll check it out. It's one of the better sort of video. Well, it's not. It's a terrible video game adaptation, but it's a, a better kind of inspired by video games movie. We'll say. Yeah, I don't know how you would ever approach making Mario Brothers into a full-blown movie. Yeah, it's absurd. Like, it's a ridiculous story. <laughs> That's never been the, the strength of Super Mario, is the, <laughs> yeah. how, how deep the lore goes. <laughs> That's very true. Um, yeah. So th- did you continue doing, like, programming stuff? Did you, did you have, like, an Amiga or an SD or anything like that? Um, I did. I didn't actually... I, I think I kind of tinkered with... Uh, um, programming on and off, and I certainly am I'm not really a very um, competent coder. I can kind of struggle through um, and get stuff done. But I think the next point that I started making games again was with Dark Basic on the um, uh, on the PC when I had a Pentium 60, uh, which my my dad had come into some inheritance uh, from a long lost relative and had bought me this Packard Bell Pentium 60. Uh, which to me was like a Ferrari. It was like an utter dream uh, to to get that that particular machine, and I can still recall very clearly the the look of the case. It had this kind of grey wavy sides to it, and it looked extremely futuristic. But I picked up uh, Dark Basic, which was this uh, 3D environment. Yeah, I've never heard of Dark Basic. I don't think. 
Yeah, it was a bit of a weird one. It was a 3D games engine, uh, which was driven by basic language, and it it was really awful. It was terrible um, it, because the draw distances were so bad, but it had the fog function. So like a lot of those early 3D PC and um, uh, PlayStation-era games that had really bad draw distancing and lots and lots of fogging, you could at least do that with it. And I actually recall programming a version of um, Asteroids in 3D when my older sister phoned me up and said, turn on the news, which is when September 11th happened. So I've got like a very clear memory of what I was doing when I was, uh, when September 11th happened, I was making 3D asteroids. Surely that'd be terrible with the fog though. (laughs) You'd be constantly on alert. It was, it was a step back from uh, the (laughs) box sex adventure, if anything I could say. Although to be fair, you could probably do something interesting with uh, like sound design. And just like if you if you could program some sort of like three D sound design, and you'd have to just listen out for them. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, in just three D space, it's just too complex to 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 make it work because it, it's just a mess to be able to represent what's going on in in uh, you know that extra dimension. But it's so good that it, you had you know you were bold enough to try. Yeah, and certainly that's a lot of what design's about, right? Failing absolutely. So uh, were you kind of, was it set in your head that you wanted to work in games, like from a relatively young age then? No, not at all. I didn't really know what I, what I wanted to do. Uh, by the time I reached university, I was studying physics um, at a relatively good university. I was at, at uh, Reading. And uh, I finished my first, first year and, you know, it did really well, but... I, I knew I wanted to get into games and I would talk to people about this and Half-Life 2 had just come out of the time and people said well that's easy you can just be a, a physics engine programmer and which was the hot job at the time and it seemed to me that that was really uninspiring that was not what I wanted to do there was something more um, that I wanted to do with my life I wanted to be a, a creative I wanted to, to make and design and build games and that's quite lazy and, as well like oh you're studying physics therefore you can be a physics programmer yeah, right. Uh, but I think that there was no careers advice, you know, advice, and people didn't really know how to get into games. Yeah, uh, there wasn't really an academic uh, path. But that same year, I think that uh, Salford University had um, started this games design degree, which didn't exist at the time that I was uh, making my UCAS applications, and I'd gone off travelling for a year. And um, I, I remember waking up one one morning, being particularly hungover. Or I say one morning; it was probably afternoon, and uh, I had a copy of Edge. Uh, by my bed, which I would read from cover to cover at that time. Uh, this would have been around the the time that the Dreamcast had just died, and I was probably playing a lot of Rares and uh, Mario Kart on the GameCube. Weirdly, I, read- I spoke to uh, David McCarthy yesterday, who probably wrote the majority of those things at that time. He was, yeah, he was I, working on Edge for like three years in the late 90s, early 2000s. I am a huge fan of uh, David McCarthy. I've actually met David McCarthy a few times now, and I'm a little bit of a fanboy with oh, he's him, lovely. I guess, the whole the whole Triforce, like Steve Curran was like a hero. Red Eye for me was, um, that was, I guess, like reading um, Hunter S. Thompson in Rolling Stones in the 60s. Like it oh, was- Oh, stop, he'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, you know, an absolute uh, uh, fandom. I, I met him once and kind of did a bit of a fan gush at him, I think about that. And, and that was, at that point also, I was interested in becoming a, a games journalist and I was for a little bit of time until I, discovered that how badly it paid 
<laughs> and decided actually maybe there was a different course. But it, it, yeah, I, so I woke up hungover and I was flicking through Edge and they had uh, at the back there was an advert for um, Salford University for a games design degree. And within a few days of reading that article, I dropped out of university, um, moved out of the, the shared house I was in. Um, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time and uh, I went back to, to live with my, my parents and I I knew that then that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I ended up studying at Huddersfield and it was the first year they'd ever run the, the computer games design degree there. And that was terrible. It was kind of came crashing down to me yeah that's a crazy you know, bold choice to like I, so you, you didn't finish the physics degree degree you thought right now i'm gonna go and do games you can do that now and just start it again yeah but i guess i never really thought it through at least not in in kind of understanding what the course was about yeah or maybe it was slightly missold because it was you know this old polytechnic that was recycling some old old courses that they had lying around like a kind of new media course and a yeah. They had a VR course that they were t- pulling bits out of and they repackaged it as this games design thing and uh, promised a lot of things and it was a mess. But the thing that was the thing that was really handy about it was that it gave me some time to, to work on a portfolio. Um, and we studied like four years or, or sorry, three years of life drawing and three years of 3D animation and uh, some opportunities to write game designs and documents. So I actually came out of it with a, a little bit of a portfolio, but the thing that was more interesting was that there was a gap year okay, uh, where you could spend a year in industry uh, and it counted some some credits. And I actually sent out two covering letters and one or two CVs and the covering letters and one was this uh, this letter to, to Sega where I just talked about how much I love Sega um, and how I really, really wanted to work there. And they invited me in for an interview and they gave me a job in the QA department. And from that, I... I spent six months there of the, the year and, and started to plead my way into production and became an assistant producer. I started working on um, the what they call Team America, so working on production for American titles in Europe. So what did and you work on? Was, I worked on Space Siege, um, The Incredible Hulk, uh, are the two that I recall the clearest. But there Incredible was also, Hulk was really good, right? Is that the, the, the sort of xbox one it was an open world yeah i remember that being really good was it not there's certainly there was there was a hulk game which everyone was like oh man this is amazing it was kind of surprising it wasn't awful (laughs) it was it was pretty good yeah um space siege was chris the chris taylor game uh from gaslight uh gaslight games i think they're called um and actually that was the one i probably was the most enamored with at the time i was there i was only there for six months so i was putting together a lot of manuals yeah uh running a lot of like builds but that was that opened doors for me uh, later because that was kind of like a seal of approval though it was like assistant producer at sega uh was enough for me to kind of get my next few few gigs and, and move on in the industry that's very exciting so i want to go back a little bit though just to the initial kind of going to university so you you mentioned half-life 2 coming out so when you went to university what was like primary gaming uh apparatus were you just playing on pc or did you bring a bunch of consoles with you as well oh i brought uh, dreamcast oh rest in peace the dreamcast yeah i was a huge dreamcast uh, fanatic and i would talk to anybody that would listen about the merits of skies of arcadia and shenmue and particularly res i 
I was yeah I was really really fanatical about the Dreamcast and you know still a, a system that holds a lot of um, a special place in my heart I think for a lot of people that were there at the time and even now if you go back and play a lot of those games still feel pretty good that it, it felt at that time that games had a very much an untapped potential absolutely and yeah the Dreamcast was incredibly interesting and I uh, I'm, I'm not too sure about if this is exactly true from my understanding of the way that Sega was structured at the time the Dreamcast was uh, was in full swing, was the company had kind of gone under a, a renaissance where many people had written had written them off and they were the underdogs after the Saturn and um, the Sega CD sold so poorly and damaged a lot of confidence for, for consumers and also for um, retailers. So I, it seemed like there was a real strong focus on really high quality games and the way that the that Sega managed to achieve that was to just give all of their internal development studios a ridiculous amount of creative freedom. And so the the quality of the content and the uniqueness of the content that was coming out of Sega at that time was was incredible. It it didn't have much commercial direction. They weren't very good. It, they weren't very good products in the sense that who is interested in playing a game about. Um, a hacker trapped inside of a uh, a computer, which is this weird synthesis landscape, or something about these sky pirates. You know, there was like the games felt very esoteric, very strange, very weird. But it was an incredibly, incredibly creative time, and the quality of the games were just exceptional. And I think that because it was written off and it was so overlooked by so many people, and there was a famous South Park episode about Cartman saving up for a Sega Dreamcast and it being a joke. Um, it, you felt like you were a, a part of this kind of like I guess like an underground resistance this, I don't know a, some sort of secret artistic salon like you were an insider you knew something that you, absolutely that, the, that this thing was important and it was historically important I think if you look back at the history of games I think the Dreamcast will stand out as a as an, as an important you know milestone in that and looking at modern uh, titles to see how much they're inspired by the likes of Shenmue in particular, you see that lineage uh, pass through. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it is an absolute tragedy what happened to the Dreamcast, but like, and I always have to qualify this, because, and I've mentioned it on the show before, um, I, I miss the Dreamcast pretty much. I didn't really, I never, I think just, you know, I, I what didn't buy into the hype as much, but then there was like a fire sale because it just died yeah. basically, and I had one of the most glorious kind of like six months where I just I was able to buy essentially the entire Dreamcast library almost for mm. almost nothing. And just everything was just amazing. I couldn't believe that I'd missed out on all these amazing games. Like and well, it, was, it, was it was unbelievable. You could just go into like an electronics boutique and they'd like buy 10 Dreamcast games for like 15 quid or something. It was crazy. Yeah, I was actually working at a game or electronics boutique at that time, and um, I also came in very late. And it was there was this fire sale where there was really, really great games on just crazy discount. I think towards the end, people kind of cottoned on that it was going to become quite collectible. And so, when Res and Shenmue Two got their limited European releases, lots of very savvy people went and picked them up um, and hoarded them, which made them in itself quite scarce. So I actually couldn't find a copy of uh, a res in the wild as it were i had to go and buy off of another collector at that point i was also collecting video games quite extensively um and so i had gone to someone else and bartered with them to get this this copy of res and the morning it arrived i just you know tore through it 
What were you, what, what was the what did you barter to get res? I think I ended up just giving him cash. <laughs> okay, the classic kind of barter. Yeah, but I also <laughs> I, I can remember all, maybe sending quite an angry email to the person saying like you know that because all of these collectors have gone on and hoarded them because the person had like three copies of it and. I, it was annoying that I couldn't go and buy it. And I kind of said that to him. He was like, I'll just, I'll sell it to you at the same price I bought it for, which was really kind of him. Um, it was, you know, incredibly ungrateful for me to kind of like, you know, storm in and demand it. I think so you it traded him in, in cash and shame for a copy of Res. <laughs> I think so. I think I guilt tripped him. <laughs> and I also did a, a, a similar thing with um, a copy of Samba Domingo. I think I only had like 60 quid and I'd seen in uh, like a local classified ad that this someone who was selling a Dreamcast package and in it was a copy of Samba Domingo box with the Maracas European, which is uh, which I'd really, really wanted. But there was only something like, you know, I think in thousands of copies, like maybe one or two thousand that had ever uh, made it out into Europe. And um had contacted the guy, and again, it was like that C64 experience where I was going back, you know, going back with as much money as I could, kind of like scrabble <laughs> together um, to get this this copy of Samba de Amigo off of it. And we played that, I think, over Christmas with my. Um, it, it was the only video game I've ever seen my nan play, and um, it, it was a really kind of quite wonderful moment to see, uh, you know, this 60, maybe 70 year old woman at that time uh, playing this game about a. Uh, a monkey a mexican monkey who has maracas yeah and, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's it, it, the more you sort of think about the dreamcast and the amount of things they did like first and how little kind of uh, traction that that was able to go i mean sam amigo like predates the entire kind of wii renaissance but it was exactly the same thing it was just mm. you know how to do it because here's you just shake maracas you don't have yeah. to there's no barrier of entry oh it's, so you must have been like well, I say the coolest kid on campus, but maybe not. But, you know, no. if you're someone with this collection, you've got all these amazing esoteric games and you're bringing them to university, that must have been like, you know, you must have attracted some pals at least. No, I think people didn't give a shit about <laughs> the Dreamcast. I remember trying to impress girls by bringing them back to my dorm room and, and uh, showing them res. Oh, that's a mistake. Uh, yeah, it was. It didn't It didn't work. Um but there was certainly there were more accessible games that I would play with with friends when they refused to play or watch me play Shamu. <laughs> we would play, uh, I guess, like Street Fighter Collection and um, Mario Kart. I think it, uh, which was Double Dash at that time on the uh, on the GameCube. So we're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna cut off here. That, that was. I was hoping for a better link, but that's fine. I can edit around it. Or, yeah. or maybe this calling, you know, acknowledgement to it. That that's a link in itself. Um, I'm going to do some relatively quick-fire questions, Will, um, sure. while we're talking about Mario Kart. Are you a competitive gamer? Yes, very much so. I play... Um, or very. I, I used to be very much so in, in Magic. I play Magic the Gathering um, to a quite competitive level. I, I when did that start? That started actually relatively recently. So I played back in the 90s at school, but really uh, it was at, I was organizing a games jam and um, I had traveled to the Orcs Nest in London and somebody said, oh, I'll teach you how to play Magic if you pick up one of these dual decks. And I just became really fascinated with it. And I, at some point I remember saying to my, my partner, I'm going to get really good at this game. 
and that was it. I started going to comic shops and playing and found a community. And I read everything I could about strategy. And I played a lot. And there is an incredibly deep amount of strategy within magic. It's, you know, definitely a geek poker or a chess. It's got a lot there to learn. I'm curious about um, this because, uh, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but like I mentioned earlier, I play like lots of Hearthstone. Not lots, but yeah. I, I, it's just like I usually play a game at least before I go to bed or something. Um, yeah. And like I know there is a certain amount of strategy to it, but there's also, you know, quite a lot of, of randomness. You know, even the best decks are not going to get you're still only going to be like 60 40 maybe chance of winning is that is yep. that the same for magic or is magic is there kind of a less of a, a element of randomness in the game no i think probably with magic there's actually even more randomness because of the way that land works there's not a set amount of mana that you get each turn so you can get what's called mana screwed or mana flooded and that makes increases the amount of, of randomness and chance uh but also like i think if for me, when I went and played Hearthstone, and I, I do not mean this as an insult, it, it felt to me like baby magic. And I think a lot of magic players that had no strategy and have got into a lot of depth with it, and then they go to Hearthstone, the decision tree is really small. Okay. Like the amount that you have to think about, the amount that you have to keep on top of mind, and the amount of derived information you can get, it's just not there. And so, yeah, for, for me, I don't get the same uh, buzz or kick out of it. Is the is an element to that the kind of the the fact you need to be sitting with somebody to play magic like they're similar to poker you know there's a certain amount of you know play the play the man not the hand. There is, I think there's there's some element of reading people and there's things that you know people call Jedi mind tricks and you can tilt your opponent, but really it, it does. Those are very small games or edges. It's really about um, the the understanding of what magic is. At, at heart is an exchange of value and you exchange turns for cards for mana for uh, life total and all of these things have a, a rough exchange value within the game that you can work out but you have to have a strategy to get your you in a place where you can get your opponent to zero life or out of cards which is the alternative win, win scenario and you have to do that through a correct exchange to get the most value for yourself at every step and so did you get really good at it I had a tutor um, at one point who that is was pretty hardcore. Yeah, yeah, and I spent a lot of time, and I had some reasonable results in some in some very minor tournaments. But I've become much more casual uh, recently. I also play uh, competitive pinball as well, and uh, much much more casually than I do magic or ever did magic. But that's also something that I take somewhat seriously, and again train trained with there's someone at the stockholm studio here in um at rovio who is ranked top 100 and we went to a tournament this weekend and pinball, I, like uh, sorry I'm, I'm do you mean just generic pinball or is it yeah. is that a specific thing like uh, that I'm, I'm not understanding the reference to no it's like real physical pinball tables but surely the the variance between tables like hey how can someone be ranked for in pinball because you know it depends on the table surely you have a ranking so there's tournaments that happen all across the uh, world and much like magic there's a governing body called the ifpa international pinball association anyway ifpa i think it's called and they have a, a ranking so i'm sort of like ranked something like eight thousandth in the world right now in in pinball 
Um, I had no idea that existed. What an amazing thing. Yeah, pinball is incredible. I know, um, I love pinball, but I'd never thought that there would be like a recognized overall, you know, skill level across all tables. So if, if somebody is tutoring you, is it just, I, I don't understand how you'd tutor somebody in pinball. Because sure, <laughs> like every, t- like, you know, I can understand someone saying, right, this is how you unlock these, you know, tracks on these specific tables to get the high scores. But just in general, you just you yeah. hit, hit the flippers. Yeah, there's there's certainly like flipper skills and there's um, certain shot, shots or skills that you can do, uh, like live catches, bounce passes, post transfers. Um, there's lots of interesting things that you can do in terms of like the actual skill of using the flippers and using the play field in a way that is going to be most efficient. And also learning certain games like on Adam's Family, you shouldn't ever really shoot the chair from the right flipper, for example. Um, that's not a necessary hard and fast rule, but there's certain things like that that can help you with your table. Why must you never do that? It. Because there's a really good chance of drain. Okay, okay. It, it, it's much safer to shoot it from the left. Yeah. I'm. I, this, this is all. This is amazing to me. I'm going to look into this because I, I do. Oh. There's a new. There's a, a a barcade just opened in Glasgow, and they have yeah. some pinball. And like what do they there's. Have? there's they have uh, a Royal Rumble machine, um, and I'm not sure of the other one because it was broken the last time I was there. Okay. Is that good? Yeah. Is that a good one? The broken one's not. The broken one's <laughs> not, no. Uh, Royal Rumble, I don't think I've ever played. Okay. I, I'm sure I Many saw that a lot when I was a kid, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, actually, the, the thing that's more interesting to me for Pimble than, than playing it is uh, the maintenance and the repair, and... And, uh, modification so something that i was talking earlier about my dad being a, a tv repairman and, and um later on going to do lots of different things with you know technical and, and, and repair related work is he taught me electronics early on and we built a radio together as a when i was probably about 11 i think um and if you looked at my school books uh, at that time there was like crew drawings of sonic the hedgehog and then circuit diagrams for radios what a nerd <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and so that's always stuck with me and pinball maintenance like i've become quite fascinated with with things i have i call myself like a serial hobbyist and i've been through home brewing and radio controlled cars and photography a whole bunch of things but recently uh, pinball and pinball maintenance became something that i became deeply interested in. i didn't know how pinball tables worked like the electromechanics of it were kind of alien to me and that yeah that doesn't stand in my mind. I have to go and find out. And so I, I started to study, uh, study up and I, I bought myself a, a, a broken table, which was a kind of like a home version and ripped out all the electronics and rebuilt with an Arduino. Um, and then later went and pulled a, um, lethal weapon three table out of a llama farmer's basement. Um, and restored that An as actual well. llama farmer or a member of the band, the llama farmers. He was an actual llama farmer. I don't know. He wasn't too sure if he had llamas or or alpacas, but he had one. Or he had that. <laughs> um, and yeah, he was he was a, a super interesting character. And I think that's. Um, <laughs> Did you find that he had a copy of uh, a Lethal Weapon pinball in his basement? He had advertised a another machine, which I think was called. Uh, I can't remember. It was another Data East machine. I saw this this Lethal Weapon three in the corner, and that was a table I had my eye and I said is that for sale as well and he was like sure 
come on round and have a look. And uh, me and a buddy drove out there. And uh, it turned out he had this, he had a weak heart and had been off of, uh, had been retired, I think, for many years. And he was like, I can't help you boys pull this out of the basement. And it was an absolute mess. We had to take, you know, doors off the hinges. And then he started pulling the, pulling the table up the um of these set of stairs and he was going right in the face and I didn't know if he was going to have a heart attack or anything. But we, <laughs> we eventually, we eventually got the, uh, the table out and home and put it in storage. And then I got a call from my landlord saying, Hey, you got to move out. <laughs> so I had to load again to a new place, which was a bit of a mess, but do you still have uh, it? Uh, I sold that when I left Canada to move to Stockholm. Do you have a table with your, with your name? I do not, but there's fortunately we have one in the, uh, the office. We have a uh, Bill and Ted's roadshow. Ah, okay, that's good. Are they still? Do you still get a new arcade machine? Oh, not new arcade, new pinball machines. Yeah, there's a few companies that actually still are in operation. Stern um, are probably the biggest. There's another company called Jersey Jack, who just put out a new Pat Lawler. Pat Lawler was the person that designed uh, Twilight Zone and also uh, the Adams Family, which are two probably the, the best regarded uh, tables of time. And he, yeah, that's just cool. That's called. Dialed in, it's just come out. There's a Game of Thrones one that came out last year. There's a company called Dutch Pinball who just released a Big Lebowski table. So yeah, there's, it's a very vibrant scene. It seems to be very much on uh, on the rise at the moment. Do you ever play any of the the console versions like Pinball FX? I play Pinball Arcade uh, quite a lot on my iPad, and actually built myself a little controller, which was a, a pinball controller that used uh, Bluetooth from my iPad at some point as well. Um, I used to play quite frequently on that, but it's not—it's not the same. It's not quite the real thing. No, I'm fascinated by the little uh, pre-built com- controller, though, because I like I play like I love pinball, but there's nowhere until very recently there was nowhere nearby that had pinball tables. Um, but the pinball effects, I think, is really good. I really enjoy it, and I like all the the wacky tables that they do. Yeah, I think for me when I played it, it feels like oh, this can happen on a real table, so that. I kind of lose a little too bit of much interest, of a but... purist yeah i don't think i'm snobbish about it just for some reason if it's not something that i can learn the rules and then go and play on a real table it doesn't it doesn't yeah. appeal to me as much but do you like do the, the uh the kind of the, the flipper tricks do they translate not so well um i think with pinball arcade they actually improve some of the, the flipper physics so things like live catches work but they that was only applied to some of the more recent tables they've got so some of the older tables still have um it also makes it a little bit more deterministic so you can do things like hold flippers up and the ball will catch which wouldn't happen on a on a real table um but also i mean it's worth it's worth noting that two tables don't ever perform the same in the real world so you could play two adams family games and they could be completely different there could be certain shots from certain flippers that you can make that you can't on the other so um i think playing electronically can kind of get you into a bit of a false sense of security about the way that a table yeah. will, will behave in, in the real world, which is not real. It inspired me to go and play some pinball. Um, I've made a mockery of this whole section there because that was quick fire questions and that was a good sort of 20 <laughs> minutes. But um, Sorry, that's my fault. No, no, that's good. This is fascinating. Um, if, if you are prone to such things, Will, what is your, your worst rage quit? Um, I don't think I would have rage quit. I probably got angry with people at playing Magic. Um I've certainly made people angry at magic. Seeing opposite them, but I don't think I've ever rage quit. No broken controllers, no smash TVs. No, I did actually play um, 
this weekend I was playing Magic against um, someone who was very sweary and very um, perturbed. I'd got through to the, the playoffs and it was knockout. And um, I'd, it was best of three. And I'd, I'd won. I'd lost on Indiana Jones. Then we played Gilligan's Island. And I'd, I'd won. And then we were down to the last ball and jackpot. And I went over to uh, my friend. He's like, how's it going? I said, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, do you know who you're playing? And I was like, no. no. And he was like, I'll tell you after. And um, he he eventually, he beat me on the final ball like quite comprehensively, but it was a really close game. And, you know, he was extremely angry and I thought he was going to walk out at one point. It turns out that he was a former world champion and currently ranked uh, number 10 in the world. Um, so I think for him to lose against a rank amateur like me would have probably been quite... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> quite harsh for him. I'm so. disappointed you didn't win, though. That's, that's bad attitude. Yeah, it was, it was close. It was a close game. It was a close game. Um... Has there ever been a game that you've played that uh, has consumed your life to the point where you've had to uninstall it and walk away? Um, yeah, the only the, the only game that comes to mind there is uh, New Star Soccer on mobile. Ah, okay. My partner actually asked me to delete that because I was spending so much time engaged in it and it, we, we just stopped talking. That was just all <laughs> I wanted to do was New Star Soccer when I woke up in the morning um, before I went to bed. We were watching TV um, while I was driving. That's, that's a joke. That was not happening. But yeah, it was like I, I couldn't tear myself away from that game. and I just had to delete it. It's weird. I've not had that. Like I had the, the exact same compulsion with New Star Soccer, but I've not had that with a mobile game for a long time now, like a good year or two. And there was, there was like a sequence of games that would kind of just whenever I wasn't doing anything else, I would be playing that game, like Drop 7, for, for a good two years i think and the kairosoft games but no yeah. it's, there's been nothing that has kind of hooked me quite the same since which is good and maybe that's just me that's changed game story the games. yeah game dev story was super compelling and that was really difficult for me i think the difference there was that my partner also got dated so we played <laughs> silently alongside each other the good thing about game dev stories though is that it finished like ultimately yeah like, I think and then you would go I back remember it. Do yeah, you just do it again. You just do it again and do it better. Yeah. Um, in the 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 rich tapestry of emotions that video games are able to convey, uh, the rarest is is uh, comedy uh, or mm. laughter. So, uh, what games have really made you laugh? Will uh, I was playing Last Guardian, and this is probably one that you wouldn't expect as uh, as one that made you laugh. But I, I was I was playing Last Guardian uh, pretty recently. I bought it opening weekend, and I was a huge fan of Ico, um, and that was you know probably a game that inspired me to to get into game dev. And I uh, I was really really disappointed with Last Guardian. The controls and um, the camera were so fiddly. I really didn't. I didn't understand. I was kind of angry about it. And I couldn't understand why this game kept on getting five out of fives and games game of the years. I think Simon Parkin, um, who I respect incredibly, also introduced me to New Star Soccer. Gave it a five out of five in the Guardian. I was like, I, and, and I read the review and I just couldn't agree with it. So I went back to the game um, and kind of forced myself to play it. And there's a moment. This is going to be a bit of a spoiler. Where um, have you played it yet? I've not, but that's okay. I don't mind. Okay. Um, he uh, Trico. Uh, grasps you out of the air you make a leap of faith and Trico grabs you and this section was it, it was actually quite quite emotionally quite effective um, and so I was like okay I can understand it and I can see it and then the strings start to rise and you get to this um, you get up onto the ledge finally and like the you know the tension breaks and the strings are you know still rising and I fumbled a control and fell off into the, off the <laughs> ledge into the, 
and I just started laughing. I just like it, it just it was uncontrollable. Um, I'm sure it was not, not the intention of the developers, <laughs> but that was uh, yeah. I laughed quite hard. That's good. That's a, that's also an extremely mild spoiler. That's absolutely fine. Okay. Because um, of course that happens. That's probably in the trailer. Not you falling off though. That's that's an ex- excellent piece of uh, of comedic timing. Um, yeah. So so what happens? After Sega then, so like after university, you said, you know, working at Sega had obviously helped you get into games. So, so where did you go? Uh, that was, a, at that point, um, I was expecting to go back, back into Sega and someone um, in the company had said that we got a job coming up for you, which is a perfect fit. Um, and I went back home and was, and was living with my parents. I said, like, well, I better take a job uh, while I, in the meantime. And a friend of mine uh, put me in contact with a company who he'd interviewed, and I think they'd offered him a job. But he was an artist, and they, he said, look, you know, these people need someone that's a little bit more, um, someone that can be a designer and a producer. At that point, I wasn't too sure where, where, I, f- where I was going to fit in the games and if I was going to be an artist. Yeah, or you had this kind of broad portfolio of stuff, so. Yeah, and so I went and got in contact with them, and the company was called Mobile Pie, and it was just uh, Rich and Tom, the two founders, uh, had laptops and that was about it and kind of a dream to make mobile games and they'd been making these little projects and they'd had a little bit of funding um, to make a, a GPS location game in a, a landfill at uh, a place called Pebsham and this project had some EU money behind it and they were doing it with these horrible uh, I think they're called like compact iPacks remember the the Windows PDA yeah, yeah. Type devices um, and so I, I went and worked for them, and well, I was kind of waiting for this Sega job to come along. And I remember talking to my contacts at Sega, and he, he said to me, "If you if you were my son, I would advise you not to get into mobile this time." And that was like that was the way that people thought about mobile. Um, then it was you know the end of the JTME era, era iPhone was starting to happen, uh, but it still was never really taken seriously as proper games. Uh, and I kind of agreed with him. I was like, "Okay, we'll do this and see what happens." And but this was this was pre-iPhone, so like, but nobody had quite imagined that kind of landscape yet. iPhone was out. I think it was out um, at that point, but it hadn't it hadn't really taken the world by storm. I think we were on maybe the three or the three GS um, uh, at that point. Okay. And um, I, I I had I came to the end of my probation period, and I said to the to Tom and Rich who were running the company, you know, like, if and we just stick around, I want to bit this company i want to become a director and let's grow and take it forward and uh about a year or so later they they did that and they invited me to the board and i became creative director and we grew the the team to about 15 people and we made games for the likes of channel 4 and bbc and we had a really good client roster we were nominated for baftas we went to the baftas which was absolutely incredible what sort of stuff were you making we were making um, movie time, so we did like uh, the official game for the Misfits. Um, we made like a horrible Made in Chelsea entertainment app, but I'd also um, acquired like uh, some some funding from Orange to make a game called MyStar, which at the uh, at the time was one of the first free to play mobile games in Europe. I think we were quite ahead of the curve, and we launched that, and then that was kind of that was it, right? It was. This is what's happening. It's 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 free to play, and it was became really obvious that that was something that I wanted to pursue. And was that um, something you'd already kind of decided on, like, or, or was the process of making that game what kind of led to you doing the book and stuff? Yeah, kind of. It was. We were talking earlier about me wanting to be a journalist, and I'd always had a life goal 
of writing a book and um i'd as free to play was happening a lot of people didn't understand it there was a lot of debate a lot of talk around it and i i had a regular column for develop magazine i was writing uh, little bits and bobs for pocket gamer as well uh games industry beers um and i think also maybe some stuff for, i think i was published in edge once which was like a dream come true uh only on the website never in print but also some other little places and i was i was writing these these things about games and think pieces about free to play and when i left mobile pi i started to do freelance consulting and helping people understand free to play and helping them integrate that model into their games or into their businesses and i started reaching out to uh book publishers uh, and I initially wanted the book to be like a compilation of these articles that I'd written about free to play. Okay. Can I swear on the show? Absolutely. Uh, the original title for the book was like, uh, it was called what the fuck just happened. And it was, that was the notion. It was like, <laughs> there's a compendium of all of these things where we talk about what the fuck just happened Yeah. and why digital delivery completely changes the business model for, um, for games and why free to play is like a necessity of that. And so I started shopping it around to some uh, to some book publishers, and, and uh, I had two people that were interested, in it and they started to bid for the rights, and I, you know, got a pretty good advance, and it gave me a little bit of time to to write it. But what my my publisher, uh, who's a very polite American, she was she said to me, um, "Well, I don't think we should." Uh, this is me doing an American accent, which is uh, awful. No, I'm but, enjoying it. <laughs> well, we don't think we can call the, the, the book uh, What the Fuck Just Happened. We're going to have to change the name. Um, so, which was pretty pretty obvious because Amazon wouldn't stock it. Um, and I lost that argument. So we changed the name to Free to Play and How to Make Money from Games You Give Away. And it came out and it did uh, it did pretty well. And uh, that, again, like in turn, then kind of opened a lot of doors. And something that somebody said to me before writing the book was, you know, what happens once you write a book is people start to treat you differently from just having written one, which I thought sounded a little bit pompous because it wasn't very difficult to write a book. You just kind of turn up every day. And if you know, was lucky to have a bit of money and, and time and space to do it, but you just kind of turn up and you write. Yeah. Um, and if you've got good, good editors, they help you along the way. But yeah, Especially it, it if you know what you're talking about and you know what you want to say, you know? Yeah, it's not difficult. It's not difficult at all. And I think that notion of people saying, like, well, you're writing a book, it's a really hard thing. So it, it surprises me that people do then. <laughs> you know, this thing that I kind of like dust around for three months and just write this book and people, yeah, people kind of change their perception to me. And that was, it was good. But it, it also gave me like a lot of opportunities to talk about a lot of things and um, to go and sort of travel the world. And one of my clients uh, was Tinyco and they invited me to, to move to Canada. And then later I moved to, um, I think, Ape in Canada and then recently just moved to, to Rovio. It's quite a whirlwind uh, tour of your your video game career thus far. What happened yeah. to the the mobile pie guys? Uh, they're still around. Actually, one of them um, moved to Stockholm, and I uh, I see them regularly. They still make lots of stuff for BBC. They do lots of uh, BBC um, kids apps. I think the CBBS apps on iPad is is theirs, and that's something they work on. So and, there's no um, bad blood yeah, or acrimony. No, not at all. And I I. I have to say that those that t- Rich and Tom gave me an incredible amount of opportunity. And how does the like, and this is maybe too broad of a question, but you know, I imagine when you're the, the process, one of the processes of, of writing the book is you know learning as much as you can about free to play and about designing for free to play. So when you have that in mind, like. Mm. Uh, 
I guess what I'm asking is like, what comes first, right? The free to play mechanic or, or or the game? Like, do you come up with games that you know you can utilize free to play mechanics, or do you just come up with a free to play mechanic and design a game around that? If that's not too cynical. No, I don't think it's either of those things. I think that designing a free to play game is not necessarily very different from designing a normal game. Uh, you know, a board game or a uh, a paid game. It's you start at any point that you happen to start. It might be a particular idea of a mechanic. It might be a an idea of something that's missing in the market. It might be a game that you like but think uh, needs some improvement. It could be a song. It could be a painting. You know, not to sound too pretentious, but it, it can start anywhere. Yeah. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Like making a, a free to play game is not from a, a creative point of view. It's not massively different from making any other kind of game but surely you have to think of the like where you would place the free-to-play parts of the game or is that just much later on no those things come in and i think that you would always work within those bounds in the same way that you would make a console game with the consideration of a controller rather than a touchscreen like they're okay, okay. Inherent ban- ban- you know they're, they're inherent limits of what you're building certainly there is a point where you and i think in, in really good free-to-play design, there's a point where you sit down and say, how much can someone reasonably spend in this game? How do we design a game which allows for a really high top end of spend? How do we make it, not only do we allow for it, how do we make it so that that seems fun and it's enjoyable and it's fair, it doesn't unbalance the game. It doesn't uh, It doesn't necessitate it, but it's uh, you know strongly compelling to spend a lot of money if you can. That has to come in at some point and it, it needs to come in reasonably early. You know, if you, if you really, really wanted to make a like a platforming game, don't make a free-to-play game. Like it doesn't doesn't make sense. If you want to make a MMO or a, a sim, then those games lend themselves really well to free-to-play. If you want to make a match game, really, really, really well to free-to-play. Um, yeah, so, so it's not, there not are everything some... is going to work as a free-to-play game, basically. Yeah, but I think also in the same way that probably uh, some of those games work very well as a as a paid game, right? Um, so during this sort of period then when you're, you know, starting to build your career, are you still playing a bunch of games, I imagine? I was playing a lot of mobile games. And I think also at that time I was, um, I built myself a, an arcade stick, a USB arcade stick and a little media PC and was playing a lot of uh, main. And that was something that me and my, my partner would often play a lot of Golden Axe together. So at that era, and I also have my Dreamcast set up as well, which was, you know, I probably at that point should have moved on, uh, but it was still there. Um, and at some point I got a PS3, but my love of kind of console had drifted off um, and it didn't really come back until I bought PS4 relatively recently and then became really infatuated with, with console games again. Oh, it's amazing. So what sort of stuff, um, like, I guess, like, what, you know, because it's the classic thing with any sort of media, really, the the stuff you listen to from the age of like you know 15 to 23 is like your formative things but have you mm. have you played anything like more recently that you has kind of really shifted your your expectations or understandings of, of games yeah grand theft auto 5 and the way in which trevor was written for me was just incredible like i it was a character that really stands with you and 
that for me was just fantastic, like a, a beautiful, beautiful game. I'd not really enjoyed a, a Grand Theft Auto game since the 2D uh, ones, but that left quite a mark. I've also played uh, Resident Evil 7. Where I actually bought that uh, the weekend that it came out and completed it that weekend, which is something that I've not done, I think, forever. With VR uh, or just on its own, like regular? Just, uh, just regular. Um, yeah, and that was a really nice feeling, actually, to feel a part, again, of people talking about it on Twitter and going into work and talking to people about, hey, how did you get on? How far did you get? Did you see this? And that was a, that was a really nice experience. And it was actually a fantastic fantastic game is it any you know, good in 2d well i've never played in 3d so i don't know it's definitely a fun game it, uh, it's just it, purely because like all of my my friends who who are playing it at the minute all are all playing it in vr and it's just yeah. that is their big selling points like they're all just completely blown away by like this is this is the game that changes vr like if you put people in this it's just a thousand times better than just the regular game and so yeah. now I've, I guess that's just completely coloured my opinion. I'm like, I could never play, never play in 2D now. I'm not a big believer in VR, but it was a game that when I was playing, I was like, I bet this is really cool in VR. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I, it doesn't I, do too much with the jump scares. I don't know if you ever played Outlast, and that really kind of jumps up in your face and it, it, it terrifies you. I didn't really want to play it. It just became unfun. It was... It's too stressful, but it it gives you a little bit of time. It doesn't it doesn't pop out at you, and it, I think it, you kind of start to trust the game that it's not going to push things too far. So, I would certainly play it in VR when I would have been a bit nervous about it beforehand. Um, so, what's next for you? Well, what are you what are you working on now, and what are you hoping to do in the future? Uh, right now, I'm working on uh, Angry Birds Two, and that is uh, I think right now the 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 highest grossing game uh, by the iOS charts for for Rovio. Um, is that something had, though? Like after you've written the after you'd written the book, is there a sort of an expectation that like you're going to make some money for them? Though, is that a bit of pressure? Well, from Rovio, just from anyone. Like if you've written this book on free to play and you know how to make yeah. money by giving your games away, and someone you know people will be as you said you know people's opinions of you change and you get sort of various offers there'll be an expectation from them surely that oh this guy knows yeah. how to make money yeah i think you get that and then also i think you get sometimes like uh well he, he's written the book those that those that do those that can do and those that can teach right i think that you also get that kind of some people are a little bit cynical about you and they're kind okay, of like, okay. well, do you really know or is this something that you know you just because there's certainly there's people in that consult in free-to-play that really have never worked on a free-to-play game that don't um that don't really know They've got a good theoretical grasp, but they don't actually know how to apply that. So, you know, I think that's pretty reasonable. But I think the expectation, if you're a product manager of, you know, a game which is as big as Angry Birds 2, is that you're going to come in and, and know what you're doing. And, How's it going? Uh, is it fun? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's great. The team here is fantastic. There was, uh, we, we had a conference uh, recently, the Mobile Games Forum, where they had the studio announced... Uh, had the game kind of been t- done so well last year and kind of turned around and we tripled the the average revenue per daily active user, the ARP DAO, um, which is just kind of, you know, it's, un- it's unheard of. So it's been a really, really good uh, year for the game and uh, for the company. And it's, it's, it's a really exciting time because there's lots of really interesting things that we're going to do with the product moving forward that I think are going to be, you know, quite surprising and quite interesting for a lot of the fans. So that's... 
yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of like hard problems always with a game um, that you need to solve from a product point of view, and you know this is no no difference. But it's certainly a really good time, and the team that we have are just absolutely incredible. Uh, it's a really good atmosphere, a really good uh, place to be. I've been at the company now for just over two months, I think. So uh, it's still very much early days. Um, still trying to understand what every how everything works. Yeah, but yeah, it's been good. That's very exciting. Do you think free to play is uh, is kind of locked down now? Do you think people understand it, or do you think there's all kinds of potential that hasn't been realised yet? I don't think there's not the same leaps and and bounds that we've had in years gone by. Certainly, the the pace of innovation and free to play is going to slow. I think we're far from having people that have mastered it. There's still a lot that really we don't understand. There's still uh, there's still very different approaches. If you look at the way that Supercell and, and Machine Zone approach making games uh, and relatively similarish games, they're very very different. You have very very different approaches that are both working extremely well. So there's a lot that we'll we'll learn. There's going to be lots of different ways that people are going to approach stuff and there's going to be a solidification but i don't think we're there yet i think we've got you know a good good evolution over the next decade if not beyond so there's there's room for another book in the future then <laughs> yeah i guess so <laughs> i think i think that's that's a, a fine place to end will um but if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention um, please do now or just you know tell people where they can find you online if you like yeah um there was one one uh I think that I was going to mention because I know that you. Maybe I'm ruining the magic here by saying that you send it like a, a kind of suggestion of what we might talk about as an outline. That's okay. You can lie if you want. Okay. And there was one of the questions which you put in there, which was like, "Has the game ever been therapy?" Um, and when I read that, I was like, "I don't. I can't ever think of that. It, that doesn't make sense. How could a game be therapy?" And actually, about five years ago, I was diagnosed as having anxiety, and magic for me, I think, was a kind of escape for it in that I would, playing Magic, you kind of become absorbed in the decision space. Like the decision tree is so huge that you can, it pushes out all other thoughts. You can only think about the move that you make. And it was an escape, I think, from my own my own mind and my own kind of thought patterns around anxiety that, that built up. So definitely Magic has kind of been quite an effective uh, therapy uh, for me. I think that that is like very, tr- very true. And very common as well like uh, amongst people that i've spoken to and like my friends like and i you know i said that myself earlier i was playing stardew valley in, in a sense to kind of uh escape the kind of madness of uh, some of the political choices the past couple of uh, months and and there is there, that's not entirely true but there's a certain amount of truth to that because i think one of the one of the best things games can do or one of the most satisfying things they can do is give you very clear actions and results you know you do this you get this yeah. and you do this and you do this and if if, yeah. you, if if life isn't presenting you with that at all and everything seems quite kind of uncertain and unnerving then it's just it's a very satisfying relaxing thing to you know know that actions will have consequences and you know you do the right things you'll be rewarded and stuff which is uh often quite rare in uh, in life unfortunately yeah and i think I, you see that very frequently in in i think in the games industry that it is a refuge for a lot of people, and um, they're they're attracted to, to games and, and they're in the games industry. There was a great talk this year at GDC um, about mental health, and 
I think the World Health Organization suggested like one in four people suffer with, suffer with mental health issues across the world. But the speaker suggested that actually the games industry is more like one in two. That was uh, um, Susan Arndt. She was on the show uh, a few months ago. Okay, yeah. And it was, that for me was kind of quite quite arresting to think about, you know, the, the frequency of that. And I certainly have got friends that, um, uh, that are trans, that have transitioned gender, and they talk about how games help them through that process and how they actually discovered their, um, their want to transition actually through exploring in Second Life or other games where they could have avatars. And that, that oh, that's me, really interesting. Yeah, I think that the benefits of games and the benefits of games to explore, to help people is really something that very few people talk about. They do talk about the, you know, the cynical nature of it. And there's often like the moral panic, which you see in uh, the Daily Mail or, you know, newspapers that, that, but you rarely ever see these positive news stories about how games can, can benefit people. And I think that the benefits are, are massive and, and certainly there's been games I've worked on MMO free to play games where people have talked about reconnecting with their estranged sons through the game and, and playing it um, and you know meeting people and getting married through through the games as well and that to me is is something this that is really important I think is uh, to kind of note as like an endpoint is if one thing to add that, that there's that power to games that we should all be kind of really aware of and um, we should amplify that as much as possible and and think about absolutely well that's that's definitely a, a nice place to end um but like where can people like find you online well if, if you want people to find you online if you don't yeah. remain silent <laughs> yeah you can get me on uh, will underscore luton on twitter and i'm on there i tweet about pinball and magic as well as free to play product management and, set, and you know pictures of my pug as well oh, nice. on. full house yeah <laughs> uh well thanks very much was that was that good for you is that enjoyable yeah, awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Good, good, good.